Um, let's see, season four, I'm going to create, oh, you already, it looks like you started did it. here, 56. What do we want to talk about today? Uh, I don't know. How was your, how was your week? What'd you, what'd you get up to? Uh, my week was all right. What did I get up to? Um, uh, you know, uh, pretty much Python stuff. Python. I mean, yeah, yeah. Nice. What, uh, what kind of stuff are you doing day to day with the Python? So right now the stuff that we're working on is like taking this website, which is, a which is a web application that was developed originally mainly for like research uh it's a research tool people use it to answer uh researchy kind of questions and uh and adding features around it like i think i might have mentioned last week like billing and uh you know use uh multi-user team management and um uh, all these kind of features like that so there's just kind of a whole lot of work to be done around that so it's kind of like a lot of like administrative stuff of like billing. Yeah, it's all the stuff that is like really necessary, but also not super interesting to work on from a you know from like an engineering standpoint. Right, especially when you go from a perspective of like I'm doing research and like on the cutting edge of this tool, and then now you're like doing all the like boring startupy stuff of like how do we charge people's credit cards? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> we need user accounts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and I mean, it's all, you know, it's all necessary stuff and we'll get back to doing, uh, you know, really product focused feature development really soon. Just, you know, in the meantime, it's, uh, you know, just kind of keep on writing your standard, like, um, startup web app, um, admin backend stuff in Python. Yeah. Checks out. Are you using Django? We are not. We're using a, uh, web framework called Pyramid. Pyramid, okay. Yeah, which is definitely not as widely used as Django. Uh, so Django is more like analogous to Ruby on Rails, right? Right. So Pyramid gives like has a lot less of a like a lot less opinion and a lot less convention around how you structure your app, and it leaves a lot more um, a lot more decisions to yourself. Is it kind of like Flask or Sinatra? So it also provides more, uh, like it provides more structure than Flask Sinatra Express, that class of sort of like really simple um, right. handle this request framework. So it's kind of a right. middle ground between the like pretty heavyweight, pretty opinionated frameworks like Django and Ruby uh, or and Rails and, and those like really simple frameworks that give you basically uh, a way to respond to HTTP requests and not much else. Right. I heard about a like a Sinatra alternative that I think was called Cuba. Huh. Spelled like the country? Yes. Spelled like the country. Uh, what's cool about it is I think it's 300 lines of code. Whoa. That's, uh, that's a small framework. Yeah. Isn't that wild? I think it functions a lot like the sort of... You know, we mentioned like Sinatra and Flask and stuff, but um, obviously very, like very, very micro in terms of its size. Sure. Yeah. What, uh, which, is pretty cool. w- which language is that written in? That's Ruby. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. I believe this is the one that I heard of. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be very, very small, which is crazy. Yeah. I'm looking at the GitHub now, um, 410 lines for Cuba.rb, and then they have a couple of other small helper files so it looks like maybe under a thousand total which is pretty unreal okay interesting um yeah hmm. and the idea that what i what i heard about um i can't remember what context this was i think it was like a twitter thread or something but basically there was uh they were like trying to make a decision at a startup about what to use and they could have used something like sinatra or they could use something like rails but the developers all wanted to use something like cuba because it was so small and so simple 
And so they knew they could build whatever t- things they need to build on top of it. And like if Cube ever went out of development, it's 400 lines of code. Anybody can maintain 400 lines of code. Well, depends on the 400 yeah. lines. But, but that's yeah, right. No, I mean, that's, that's very true. I mean, it's 400 lines of Perl, you know, you're on your own. <laughs> 400 lines of a web framework written in Bash. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Which exists, I forget, I, like years ago, I remember. Really? Yeah, I remember reading it some, I mean, it's not like something you'd use in production, but um, I'll, I'll try to find, you know, I'll try to find a link, but it's like a, you know, web framework written, um, you know, like like uh, Flask or, or Sinatra or Express, but in Bash, like le, like wow. shell scripting. Just Googling here, there's a couple of things. One's called LOL, and it's a Bash web framework, and the other one is called Bash on Balls. Okay, I think Bash on Balls Just is the one that I'd heard about. Cute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, less commit, uh, May 2013. It's clearly not something that is actually uh, used. Right. <laughs> any any open issues we got here? Let's see. Mm, what do we have? One issue in August, on August 2015. Missing a template. Doesn't really work on OS X. <laughs> <laughs> nice framework. Needs a task runner. <laughs> Let's add some more features to it. Oh, also man. Also written in Bash. Bash on Balls. Yeah, so um, there you go. You can do that if you want. Can I have a web framework of anything? Uh, looks like the LOL web, web framework is, uh, oh, last went April 2016, so that's a little more, little more recent. A little more modern, yeah. Uh, the README has a GIF of a cat playing a toy piano, so that's pretty professional. Um, speaking of web frameworks, I think Vapor 3 is starting to get into a more finalized situation and okay. i was trying to find some 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 summary of you know how much is like how much is changing in, in vapor 3 because i knew they were like kind of moving away from the synchronous model that they had where you know you get a function to handle and that function has to return synchronously mm-hmm. and i knew they were moving away from that but i didn't know like how much and, and how much things were going to change and uh somebody in in one of these slacks sent me a very useful uh, article that i'll throw in the show notes that kind of explains what they're doing. And essentially, everything is going to move towards being future-based. And so if you okay. want to hit the database, that's a future. If you want to hit the network, obviously future. Instead of the way it was in Vapor 1 and 2, where those things um, were all just synchronous, and your request handling thread would just be blocked until that came back. So this is a huge architectural change, right? Both in like how the server works and in how like applications written on Vapor uh, work. Yes. Like this will yes. require really big changes to applications which are currently using Vapor. I I remember doing the Vapor 1 to 2 migration for Beacon, and that was like a day, day and a half, two days of work. Okay. This, I, I just, you can't even write the same code in this. Like, I feel like you would really have to ground up, change almost everything about every single function. It's almost moving from a, uh, like, Rails or Django sort of execution model to uh, nodes, right? Yeah, where it's a callback based. Well, essentially, it's promise based, right? Right, exactly. Um, so, which works, and I, I mean, I think it'll be good, but just switching to it will be pretty tough. So, Vapor, of course, is the uh, is a web framework for Swift. What uh, what features are they rolling their own sort of futures or promises library, or is there a popular implementation that they're going to uh, that they're going to use, or has that not been decided yet? No, I think it's like I think it's like almost all written. Um, I don't know when it's coming out. I think they're kind of in the like beta testing, try it out, like get us some bugs and and like kind of let us know what's going on um, phase of the project. But no, I think that I think it's like pretty pretty set how it's going to work. 
one thing I'm pretty sure about, I kind of want to dig into the um, actual branches and see like, you know, what is, mm-hmm. what's sort of out there. But one of the things I'm pretty sure of is that the future is not going to be error parameterized. Okay. So if you have a, like, you know, a, a promise of, I guess, a future value, um, it's not, it's, it's going to be failable, but it's not going to tell you what type that failure comes in. I mean, that's kind of in line with the um, Swift philosophy of how errors get typed or don't. Um, right. Which, which we talked about before. We've talked about once or twice. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. I still don't know where I, where I land on typed errors. I know I chose to do not error parameterized promises for my promise library just because it was a real pain in the ass to mm-hmm. use. So I think they made the right decision here. And then I, I talked to one of their people, um, Logan, in a Slack, and he was saying basically like this is going to be a really, really rough transition, but it's going to be worth it in the long run because once async await lands in Swift, the change there will be very simple. And right. um, we're already going to be thinking in this like future model of everything. And so we're kind of like moving, we're skating to where the puck will be is essentially what his argument was. Right. And that totally makes sense. And that probably is why, uh, you know, they're using things like uh, errors that don't have, um, that, that aren't parameterized on the type. Right. Because Swift doesn't support that. And it's like try and throw and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that totally yeah. makes sense. Okay, cool. Uh, are, yeah. Do you have any ongoing, like, do you have any projects that you're, that you want to try in Vapor 3? No, um, Beacon is kind of on the back burner for a little while. Okay. Uh, I think we'll bring it back for WWDC, but it's, I don't think it's like necessarily like a viable product. So it doesn't yeah. have a lot of value for us to like pour much time into. Do you, uh, do you, do you have people using it now or has it kind of, um, like, no, it's pretty much fallen off. Okay. When it works, it works best when it's, when it happens like with an event. Yeah. And we saw good, good results with that with like 360 iDev and WWDC, but trying to like push that push the product out there and trying to convince conference organizers and stuff to use it was tough. Sure, yeah. And we didn't really see like that much of a future in it, and so we're just like, you know what? Maybe that maybe this can just be like a service that we provide to the you know iOS and Mac and Greater Apple community for WWDC mm-hmm. basically because it was it was successful there and it doesn't cost us much to run it. Heroku is pretty cheap, um, so we'll probably fix a bunch of bugs in the April and June April and May and June timeframe, and then have that out for uh dub dub this year cool cool yeah so and i don't think i'm going to be upgrading to vapor 3 for that i think vapor 2 is good enough and yeah i mean if you didn't see performance or scalability scalability issues and um you know if will will vapor 2 continue to be supported at all or is it kind of going to be like you're on your own well I mean, I, I, since like when I download the code for like I can run it for a while. I don't know how much support there will be in terms of like answering questions and stuff, but um, I can kind of run it for a very long time. Yeah. Um, so I'm not super worried about that because it's not we're not hosted on like the Vapor Cloud or anything like that. I'm I'm thinking um, more like security updates uh, that that kind of support. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know what's going to happen with that. That's a very good open question. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. So maybe when Vapor three comes out, uh, decide it's like really really nice. Um, I will want to kind of switch everything over, but but for now, I think I'm good. It kind of makes me think that like maybe this isn't the right time to do this transition because if they waited until let's say async await comes out in Swift five, if they waited until async await came out, then all you'd have to do is add await in front of all of your function calls. 
and it would everything would just kind of work right and it would tell you hey this this function needs to be awaited that's so true, you would upgrade yeah. to this like new version of vapor that's async ready and swift 5 at the same time add the word async to everything and it would just kind of work whereas now you have to like you know, because the language doesn't have async await, you have to use blocks. And so you're ending up tabbing your code in, you're adding flat maps everywhere. It's like transform from one promise to the next, like chain from one to the next. Yeah. Maybe they should have waited. I mean, so I so the idea is that this transition from Vapor 2 to 3 is going to be really disruptive. And then the move to, uh, from like Vapor 3 to something that uses async await is going to be like largely moving to code that looks more like what you had with Vapor 2. Yeah, that's my thinking. That's a yeah. That that's an interesting. Um, hmm. That's yeah. an interesting problem. I mean, do we know at all that async await is actually going to be part of Swift five? Uh, I haven't really been following you know Swift development that closely, but my impression was that um, so, so concurrency features are still quite a ways off. Yeah, you know, now that I think about it, um, so Swift four point one is supposed to be out in the spring, which is like in a month or two. Yeah. And I know they wanted to get to async await for Swift 5. Maybe maybe they pushed it off. I know uh, ABI stability is very, very important. And I, right. they said whatever ABI we end up with for Swift 5, is that's it. That's all it's going to be. What's in the ABI is in the ABI. Yeah. Whatever's <laughs> in the ABI is in the ABI. Because async await is really just sugar around this kind of exact same like block style of code. Mm-hmm. Um, so totally. I don't think – maybe it won't make it for Swift 5. Now, uh, do we want to talk about Swift 4.1 since you mentioned it? Uh, yeah, we can. That'd be cool. So, uh, it's the real grab bag of an episode. Uh, it is, but uh, we're going to cover some interesting stuff. I also have a note yeah, on right. um, a, a Heroku-related thing we can maybe circle back to. Oh, cool, yeah. So um, Swift 4.1, what are the big uh, like the big bullet points here? I think we, we have to note conditional conformances. Right? That is the big, that is like the elephant in the room. That is the thing that Swift 4.1 is going to bring. Yeah. Uh, I think we're all very excited about that. The other, we'll talk about conditional conformances in more depth in a second, but I think the only other thing I've heard about, you know what, actually it looks like there is a couple things. So one thing I heard about was that um, there was going to be a key transformation strategy for Codable. Right. That's like a sentence that would not have made much sense two years ago. <laughs> Basically, if all of your API uses snake case, right? So it's like word underscore second word. Mm-hmm. You can just say the transformation strategy for these coding keys is always going to be snake case to regular camel case. Mm -hmm. And it'll just handle it for you. So you have to retype all those things. That's pretty cool. Yeah, where previously, um, like the JSON keys had to, what had to match property names, otherwise you had to define your own um, mapping, basically. Right, exactly. And they had to map, every single key had to map exactly, or else you would have to define everything, I think. And so now every key can map exactly, but via the uh, transformation strategy, which can be snake case or like camel case. Right, exactly. And and then you can provide your own transformation strategies as well. Oh, nice. So that's a way that you yeah. can, uh, so if you have just one or two keys that don't conform to something standard, that's pro- that's a way that you can still like have something that isn't super repetitive. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea because I assume the way that the custom transformation strategy thing works is you just give it a block and it transforms a string to another string. But yeah, you could just say like, if the string is this, change it to this. If it's this, change it to this. Otherwise, Otherwise, fall back to this other strategy or just fall back to leaving it alone. Yeah, or yeah, write write your own little um, snake case transformation. Right. Okay, that's cool. 
I, I think that was the other big Swift 4.1 uh, feature, which which at least I'm aware of. But I mean, conditional conformance really is the the really big news. I think. Yeah, that is that really changes like what kind of code you can write. Mm-hmm. Really fundamentally. Um, one other quick thing I want to add is I, I'm reading an article and I think synthesized equatable and hashable is also going to be in 4.1. Really? Okay. Yeah. Synthesized, equatable, and hash. Oh, so you don't have to implement this yourself or realistically you, so, so, uh, this is yet another, um, sorcery feature, which Apple is, yeah. uh, is Sherlocking into the Swift language. Well, they're kind of manually adding each of these sorcery, these things that we use sorcery for, but it's like, mm-hmm. just give us sorcery. Like, let us just do this. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's like clearly nice to have uh, first class language support and first class, like, toolchain support for all this right i mean sorcery is great but it is something that you have to put into your toolchain yourself right what i'm saying is like if they gave us some kind of tool to build these little components ourselves then we would be less reliant on you know having to automatically like having to build these features one by one yeah, you know I mean, I mean or, or wait for these features to trickle out one by one from the from apple i mean i think that's true but also I yeah. I don't know if um I I mean I'm struggling to come up with a good argument here, but I don't think that this is something that like um the same like group that writes your programming language and compiler and everything needs to provide you with uh, effectively like code generation tools. They've provided you already with you know via like uh w- with SourceKit right with the tools that you need to build tools like Sorcery. Yeah, that's a fair point, and I think one of the best counter arguments to why you should use Sorcery is like, what do you really need it for? And the big answers are synthesizing equatable, synthesizing hashable, and synthesizing like all cases right. for an enum. And it's like, well, if you can just kind of get this from the compiler, it's fine. Right. And for, uh, you know, there, there surely are more, uh, more unique or more advanced transformations and code generation tasks. And for that, the team provides like first class, uh, you know, support via, for, for tools that would need to uh, deal with the, with the syntax tree. Right. 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 Um, yeah, so synthesized equatable hashable, pretty cool. Yeah, but yeah, the big bombshell: conditional conformance. Conditional conformance, uh, so huge. That, which one of us wants to take a stab at um, at explaining conditional conformance? Uh, I say go for it. All right, uh, I'll do my best. Let's remember writing Python, which <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have conditional anything. Doesn't have uh, well, it has conditionals. I guess it doesn't have conformance. Doesn't though. have generics. Doesn't have conf- yeah. So in Swift, up until now. There has not been uh, a way to add protocol conformance to uh, some, you know, to a class or to some type. Only in certain cases, like uh, if the cl- if the class uh, has has a certain associated type, right? Is that are they still called associated types? Is that the well? It, it also works for generics, right? Okay, and maybe it only works for generics, actually. Oh well. And you can use associated types to get to generics, but right, associated types have some have like a a complex but fairly like close relationship with with generics, right? So right. conditional conformance is a way to write basically that say an array or say a collection uh, conforms to some protocol when the members of the collection conform to uh, conform to some protocol, right? Right, right. So what's a good example of this? Uh, I think equality, I think equatable is a textbook example, right? Yeah, totally. So let's say you have some collection uh, and you want uh, like this collection to uh, be comparable with some other collection. 
um, only in uh, you know only in the case where the collection members are, are equatable or comparable, whatever whatever we're concerned about. Conditional conformance lets us add this uh, in a like in a, in an elegant way as opposed to what we've been doing previously with things like arrays, uh, which is defining a whole lot of operators outside of the array class that uh, let you like make equality checks on, on arrays of various types, which, which breaks down in, um, in a number of in- interesting cases. Yeah, that sounds 100% right. There's- I have one quick thing I want to ask you about, which is you mentioned comparable, and I know strings are basically collections that are comparable, but what does it mean for an array to be less than another array? Well, okay, so I said comparable where I really meant equatable. I'm just trying to like think uh, I'm trying to think of other examples that are uh that are not equatable just to throw something different out. But um I, I wasn't trying to do like a gotcha or anything. I am I am curious, like like cause you can do comparable to yeah, two strings. I mean and strings are basically collections, so why can't you do like? Is there a case where you would have two arrays and you'd well, want to str- talk about Well, strings there? have a, like a kind of messy definition of comparable that it, like depends on like Unicode and a lot of sort of domain knowledge about what a string is a collection of, right? I don't right, think you right. can come up with a useful general case definition of comparable for a collection. Period. Right. So, but if you can define comparable for two characters, which I think you can. Mm-hmm. Then you could say, imagine a generic comparable algorithm over a collection that falls back to its elements. In which case, that would be the character. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And that would be something that could apl- that could you could apply to like strings as a collection of characters, or to right. some other array where you have some notion of individual elements being comparable. Right. Would that ever be useful? Um. I'll th- I guess like I'll it think could be about useful. it. You could probably come up with something. Right. If you had like an array of version components, right? Like my my app is version two point zero point one. Oh yeah, and you wanted to compare those like pairwise. Mm-hmm. There, there's currently in the in the standard library, you, there's operators for tuples of arity up to six. I think so. If you can make a tuple out of your version, then you can compare them. Right. Um, but this would allow arbitrary lengths to be compared with arbitrary lengths, which would be kind of cool. Yeah, it would be. Other than that, I can't think of anything. Okay, so so sort of going down that same path, I can't think of a specific example right now, but there definitely are other cases where you want to sort things by, um, where you want to sort like decimal decimal numbers or lists of decimal numbers by um, like, okay, sort the most significant or uh, you sort the largest digit, right? And then the next largest and so on and so forth. Um, Right. Or or not digit, but um, no. Let's say uh, you want to sort a list of um, IP addresses or something like that, right? Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, for yeah. for whatever reason, you might want to do that. So there was a good episode, uh, if I'm remembering right. There was a good episode of Swift Unwrapped a little while ago where they discussed conditional conformance and maybe other Swift 4.1 stuff. Um, I don't remember exactly. Uh, we should put that in the show but notes. But we'll definitely throw that in the show notes. Uh, Swift Unwrapped in general is a great um, great show if you want to like dive into what's going on in the Swift sort of language development world. Yeah. They go in a little bit deeper and on a little bit more specific set of topics than we do, I would say. Yeah, they uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think they know what they're talking about a little more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think than both of us. Fair, yeah. 
So other things that conditional conformance is good for. So you mentioned equatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good for hashable. So an array is hashable yeah. if its elements are hashable. That's a really good and um, some, that's something that applies probably more often than equatable even. Um, one thing that I heard, I found a tweet about this, um, I think from Slava, but he was saying that the, the two features in 4.1 don't actually work together yet. So if you have something that synthesizes a hashable conformance, you can't use that with conditional conformances oh. yet, <laughs> which is really funny. Uh, I'll try to find that that tweet for the show notes. I'm sure that'll get, um, you know, <laughs> this happens with software that's in development. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, here I found the tweet. <laughs> yeah, the joke is from Slava, but I don't know if anybody's specifically responsible for this. But um, yeah, Swift 4.1's biggest features, conditional conformance and automatic equatable synthesis won't work together. So we'll toss that in the show notes too, <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny. Um, but, you know, computers are hard and... You know, computers are hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's conditional conformance is also useful for codable. So an array is codable if all of its elements are codable. Mm -hmm. Although somehow they're like kind of doing that already. I don't really know how they're doing it, but there have been situations where I tried to write my own kind of codable thing. And I would say, okay, I have this object storage and this object storage is generic over some type and found at some location on disk. And then when I want to save and write, when I want to, sorry, read and write those things to and from the disk, I would have to have a separate set of methods for arrays Mm -hmm. because I couldn't express to the compiler, um, I want an object storage of an array of, let's say, locations. Can't express that without conditional conformances because not all arrays are going to be, like, encodable. Sure, Some of them are going to be um, encodable because they have encodable... uh, elements but the other ones aren't going to have that so they won't be encodable in any way so you end up having to make some kind of sacrifice somewhere they're getting around that in the codable protocol itself somehow because you can do in swift 4.0 mm-hmm. you can say i want you to decode a type of you know array of locations dot self right like that type and you can you can get away with it and it works somehow i don't know how they make it work but they make it work huh i i don't know that much about i, I don't know much about this either I'll just note that, like in general, the way that stuff like this kind of works now is by, is um, by the definition of like uh, generic functions outside of the like protocol or outside of the type that they're concerned with, and uh, it's you know specialized to some case, and uh, that it often involves um, you know code generation or something like that. Yeah. So basically, if you want to write a lot of your own constructs around codable and stuff, you will be able to get that with these with conditional conformance or like one thing i've always wanted is basically this concept of like a json value i want to be able to express that numbers boolean strings and null are all json values optionals are json values only if their contents are json values arrays are json values only if their contents are json values and then dictionaries are only json Mm -hmm. values if their keys are strings and their values are json values yeah and then once you have that, then you can kind of bridge a little bit and you can say, okay, well, now I want to describe something called JSON convertible so that now a date can be converted into something that's a JSON value. And then that way I can use a date in a dictionary and pass it to some part of my app. And then that app automatically knows how to convert it to JSON. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't do those last three critical components. The optional is only a JSON value if its contents are optional or contents are 
JSON values, and so on if you don't have conditional conformances. So there's a lot of really cool, weird stuff you can write with conditional conformances. It's going to be huge. Yeah, it'll be huge. And also, I mean, it'll work kind of intuitively, right? This has been one of the counterintuitive parts of Swift generics um, for, for quite a long time, is it? I can't say uh, this collection is hashable if its elements are hashable. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I feel like everybody who learns Swift like hits that point where they're like, I want to express this, mm-hmm. but I don't know what keys to hit to make it look to make it look right to the compiler. Right. And then you go Google and then you learn about this like fundamental flaw. Not right. flaw, but Fun- limitation. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's a temporary limitation that's going away hopefully in a few months. Yeah, and I'm really glad that that it's going away. That's that's really exciting. Yeah. And I think they've kind of been tweeting here and there about how many lines of code the standard library has actually dropped and how much of the boilerplate generation stuff they've dropped yeah. because of conditional conformances. It's something like a 5% reduction in code size, if I'm remembering. Um, yeah, I think, pretty tight. Yeah. I think I, think I, I think probably got a, that number from Swift Unwrapped. Uh, there's a Swift blog post about it. Like the, from the Swift official blog, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that blog post. Yeah, yeah, this is a good yeah. read. Yeah, it is for sure. And they, they explain why they need it and what they can use it for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're going to be able to make some really powerful things with. Uh, yeah, definitely. Performances. You want to hit me with that thing about Heroku? Oh, I'm curious right. now. Uh, this is something which um, I learned about recently from a friend of the show, Andrew, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, also coworker of mine, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Um, this is a little project called, uh, Doku, D-O-K-K-U, which is a, uh, according to the language statistics here, a bunch of, uh, shell scripts or uh, a bunch of like shell related, shell script related tools and a little bit of, well, a little Go, a little Python, which you can deploy to just a, you know, to a virtual machine somewhere and which gives you a Heroku like experience for uh, like deploying and running an application. So, if you set this up on, you know, say a VM at DigitalOcean or at Linode, you can uh, then push code to it, and it reads the same. Um, I, I don't know that much about Heroku, but it'll read the same, like little files that describe uh, how this application gets deployed and run, and it'll run it on that VM for you. This is amazing! Isn't that a cool idea? I was literally in the elevator like two days ago being like, it would be so cool if I could just have my own mini Heroku that I could just deploy to and not have to worry about any of the nonsense of like paying for Heroku or dealing with it. This is so cool. I have got some good news for you. (laughs) Tell me. Tell me the good news. Uh, It's that this exists and you can have your little personal Heroku. Ah, this is really So I haven't actually tried this mostly because... Like, I can't come up with a good excuse. Like, I don't have anything that I want to deploy that isn't already deployed. Right. Right. Well, maybe you could just deploy something for fun. Yeah. I mean, maybe I should. And I get, yeah, it doesn't have to be something that lives forever. So I, I, I've never tried this personally, but uh, apparently it works. There are the, the, the configuration files that define how Heroku works are their build packs there's like an app.json file and then something called a proc yeah, file. Yeah, apparently this this is compatible with those Heroku build packs. That is so cool. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm like maybe just going to move everything over to this. I mean, like the caveat here is that you're responsible for maintaining this now and uh, in, instead of Heroku. So that's, yeah, but that's my, what you lose. This new Linode instance that I got, Linode, Linode, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is I'm paying like $4 a month for it. It's like unreal how cheap it is. Oh yeah, it's and yeah, yeah, and um, it, I was paying forty dollars a month of rack space for the exact same thing. What? What? Yeah. Wow. 
I know. That is absurd. I haven't paid $40 a month for a VM yeah. ever. And we're paying, I think we're paying 16 bucks a month to Heroku just for Beacon. Yeah. And so, if we, you know, if this, if I could get this to support like Postgres, or I could just keep my Postgres on, um, on Heroku if I want, but like basically if I get this to support Postgres, mm-hmm. I can just deploy everything this, to this. This definitely supports Postgres. Yeah. And, and I could, um, I could run everything for like probably 10 bucks a month. So, Cheaper than any one of the things I had before. Yeah. So, okay, let's say I want to set this up God, for this myself so and cool. deploy something. What should I deploy? You should make a vapor app. Oh. Make a vapor app that. Do you think um, this, this supports vapor? Yeah, because there's vapor build packs. Huh. Yeah. I'm going to look into this. Yeah. Make a vapor app that has an endpoint that every time you give it some text, it spits back the it sorts it. of the text. <laughs> it sorts the text. Um, yeah, like spits back Pig Latin, or it, it does some kind of transformation on the text, and then and it gives it back to you. Okay, cool. Do that. Yeah, I don't and know. Now we can play with Vapor, and you can play with this Daku thing, and you can... Does this actually support Swift deployment? Because, oh my god, if it does. So, so build packs are just bash scripts. And like Docker containers are just bash bash scripts. Hmm. Like everything's just bash scripts. Hmm. So like if your thing can run bash scripts, hmm. probably gonna work for you. This is so freaking cool. Fifteen thousand stars too. Like people know about this. Like this is a real thing. What was that loud noise outside? I'm gonna go look out my window for a second. <laughs> oh boy, this is how a serial killer movie starts. Uh, I don't know. I think it was just. Um, I don't see a car accident outside, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're. I didn't hear. I don't know if your microphone picked it up, but I'm glad you're safe. I, I was. Li- I was really worried you were gonna. I was on headphones. Wander off, time. and I was gonna hear a Chris-shaped scream, and you know, a Chris-shaped scream. Yeah. Title. Name my, my new novel. Ooh, I do like that. <laughs> Look for that. Um. Cool. This is fun. Nice. Uh. Yeah. I will start looking and seeing if I can deploy Swift with this. This is cool, man. This is really cool. Uh, well, I'm glad that I could uh, that I could blow your mind with this. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This is fucking cool. I uh, are we allowed to swear on the show? It's Patreon, man. We can do anything we want. Oh, that's right. <laughs> hey, Patreon people. Hell yeah, we love you. All right, should we wrap up? Yeah. Uh, since you mentioned this is Patreon, uh, you know, as as always, or as we've forgotten to say the last couple episodes, because we're we have a less formal format. Uh, thank you a lot for your support. You are making the show possible, and uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, we think you're great. We think you're just great. We think you are great. On that note, cool. um, I I don't have much else to add. We didn't really cover much from the topic ideas list. Maybe next week we'll discuss uh, Swift Evolution 195 dynamic member lookup. Maybe we'll discuss um marco's end of the conference era blog post maybe we'll discuss more about android and kotlin who oh i want to hear more about uh, your your belkin and wemo um adventure oh, too. actually there are some huge updates on the belkin front and huge to updates. hear those tune in uh <laughs> next week on fatal error uh sweet <laughs> sweet talk to you soon chris bye sirs